Welcome to 2050 Investors, the podcast that deciphers economic and market megatrends to meet tomorrow's challenges. I'm Koko Abouba. I head up economics, cross-asset, and quant research at Société Générale. In each episode of 2050 Investors, I'll investigate a key megatrend that relates to the economy, the planet, markets, and you. How much is 254,345 times 3,245? 254,345 times 3,245 equals 825,349,525. When did Napoleon invade Russia? Napoleon and his grand army of 600,000 men invaded Russia on June 24, 1812. You might have noticed that Siri is now self-aware. You don't need to say, hey, Siri, anymore. Hmm. Does this mean that my job might soon become redundant? Very likely, but you still have some time, Koku. Five years, two months, and 16 days to be precise. Ah, time to consider learning new skills then. But wait a second. Comparing our abilities to that of machines reminds me of Charles Darwin, It is not the most intellectual of the species that survives. It is not the strongest that survives. But the species that survives is the one that is able to adapt to and to adjust best to the changing environment in which it finds itself. This is precisely what is often misunderstood about Darwinism. And guess what? Dinosaurs were incredibly smart and obviously very strong. And yet, they failed to adapt to the changing atmosphere after a meteorite 10 kilometers across, suddenly hit the Earth 65 million years ago. And this happened after they've been living on Earth for about 165 million years. Modern humans, in comparison, only appeared 300,000 years ago. And they were clearly not at the top of the food chain back then. The brutal end of the dinosaur era was as tragic as the city of Pompeii, the Italian city buried alive by the sudden volcanic eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD. So, what is the key ingredient or the secret sauce we need to survive when it comes to our jobs? Turning oneself into a thinking machine? Mm, Not quite, Siri. It is in fact um, human ability to adapt to change. Yeah, right. You'll have to wait a few upgrades before you get there, my friend. In other words, when it comes to skills and jobs... Having a strong AQ, or lack thereof, can have a massive impact on your career. But what is AQ? AQ is the adaptability quotient. It is the ability to adapt and thrive in an environment of change. Thanks, Siri. The topic of this episode is the following. Is adaptability quotient more important than intellectual and emotional quotient? Is AQ more valuable than IQ and EQ combined? Let's start our investigation. First, let me share with you a short life experience of AQ in the world of finance. When I was a first year student in business school, I remember everyone wanted to work for big consultant firms or investment banks. The top guys went into mergers and acquisitions. These were the people you never saw again as they worked 30 hours a day. And by the time they turned 30, they looked like 50 year olds. 
Then came the dot-com boom in the late 90s, and joining an internet startup was the best thing in town. I remember telling myself that I was born too late and was missing out on a massive megatrend. This boom ended badly, and those who left secure jobs for dot-com startups were soon told by their manager, you know, Koku, you're a man with a great future. Behind you. <laughs> Not very nice. I agree. We then saw the era of booming jobs in capital markets, sales, traders, financial engineers. Working for a proprietary trading desk or a hedge fund was very popular. But after the great financial crisis, bankers experienced something close to a mass extinction event triggered by the Lehman's sudden bankruptcy. This was the financial market's equivalent of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which sent massive shockwaves across the world economy. Over 10 years later, banking has recovered somewhat, with more regulations, more constraints, and a lot less leverage. Some tech companies are worth more than $1 trillion. A lot of young graduates out of university are being drawn towards digital and big tech. These sectors are big consumers of human brain power. Quantum computing, Python coding, data scientists, you name it. So, the bottom line is this. Despite periods of job destruction, you also have significant job creations. Job seekers have reskilled and adapted themselves as they've always done for centuries. Think about jobs that no longer exist, such as A quick Google search across terabytes of articles shows lifts operators, lamp lighters, milkmen, switchboard operators. Indeed. The Industrial Revolution caused a Schumpeterian creative destruction for jobs. Dying industries gave way to new industries. Even today, the existence of YouTube or TikTok influencers are only made possible thanks to the creation of the smartphone and to the significant expansion of social media. But what about the jobs that will never go away? Here's what I found on the Geneva College website. Thanks, Siri. Social workers, educators, healthcare professionals, nurse midwives, police officers, marketing, design, advertising professionals, data scientists, dentists, conservation scientists, cybersecurity experts, AI machine maintenance. What about psychotherapist? For both human and AI machines, as discussed in the, the Recovery Is You episode on the societal scars of COVID-19 on mental health. That's correct. I'm impressed by your memory, Siri. Thank you. That's a good point. I've read somewhere that two-thirds of all psychopaths are not in mental hospitals, but very much in the corporate world. This reminds me of the movie American Psycho, where the main character, Patrick Bateman, goes completely crazy. Now, what does all of this mean for the economy and markets? Well, this is a very relevant topic today. The current supply chain disruptions caused by a significant surge in demand as economies reopen can be linked to the trillions of cumulative excess savings built up during months of confinement. All this demand has put supply chains into overdrive and unable to cope. This is causing demand pool inflation across goods and services. But it was also caused by a job and skill mismatch between job openings and the unemployed. The shortage of truck drivers in the UK is a very interesting case in point. An article I read on WashingtonPost.com in September entitled Why America has 8.4 million unemployed when there are 10 million job openings argues that there is a big mismatch now between the job available and what workers want. 
the number of unemployed fell by 710,000 to 7.7 million in October, to be precise. This is because some of these jobs that cannot be automatized like childcare, elderly care, education or jobs in the hospitality sector have historically seen low wage increases. They are no longer attractive to job seekers at a time when the cost of living is going up. Today, employers are forced to increase wages in order to attract job seekers given the acute shortage of labor supply. It is one thing to adapt to change, but equally it is as important for an economy to provide jobs with decent pay. Let's discuss this topic with our guest speaker, and who else but a Nobel Prize laureate in economics, to ask about the future of jobs. Sir Christopher Pissaridis is a Cypriot and British economist. He is the School Professor of Economics and Political Science and Regis Professor of Economics at the London School of Economics and Professor of European Studies at the University of Cyprus. His research focuses on topics of macroeconomics, notably labor, economic growth and economic policy. In 2010, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics jointly with Peter A. Diamond and L. Mortensen for their analysis of markets with theory of search frictions. One of his most well-known papers is Job Creation and Job Destruction in the Theory of Unemployment with Dale Mortensen, published in the Review of Economic Studies in 1994. And finally, in 2013, he was knighted in the Queen's Birthday Honours for Services to Economics. Professor Sir Chris Pisaridis, thank you for taking part in this podcast. It's a real honor. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Let's start with one of your key discoveries, which is very relevant today, particularly in the US, where we have close to 9 million job openings and approximately the same amount in terms of unemployed frictions and mismatch in the job markets. Do you think this is transitory or permanent? Well, it's quite interesting that the new technologies that we're having now uh, have two features. One is that they're, they're changing faster than in the past. So we need to adapt to the new technology in the labor market faster. I don't consider that to be the most important. The most important one I consider is the second one, which is that the new skills that we have to learn to overcome the friction of uh, technological change are now harder than in the past. In other words, we have to cover a longer distance now to go from the pre-existing technologies we knew to be able to work with the new, te- with the new technologies. And that's why we're seeing uh, unemployment uh, high and uh, vacancies high at the same time. You asked me if it's a, a transitory phenomenon or permanent, where frictions are always... They're always there because technology is changing all the time and we have to adapt uh, to new circumstances. But the idea of the friction is that we don't jump from one point where we were before to a new equilibrium instantaneously, but it's a slow adjustment because there's an adjustment cost in the meantime. So I don't see a situation where uh, there will be no coexistence of vacancies and unemployment. But I do see the existing situation improving, for sure, as uh, we're learning uh, new ways of learning, of uh, working with the new technologies, we're learning new tricks, new skills. People do learn. 
this is an important point because in one of your lectures online, you mentioned the dynamic of job destruction and job creation, where you observed that across developed economies, um, the employment rate has roughly remained constant at 70% of total population over time. But in a world where jobs are being more automated, do you think that the pace of job creation can keep up with that of job destruction? Here, we cannot avoid bringing uh, COVID-19. I think we were coping with the destruction due to the new technologies and the creation of jobs in in alternative sectors of the economy. The reason is not that knowledge was not advancing fast. The reason is that companies were taking it more slowly, you know, more gently to introduce new uh, technologies and uh, destroy jobs and move on to new uh, situations. With COVID, we know that uh, technological adoption has accelerated in the attempts that companies uh, were making to avoid human contact at the place of work. But at the same time, the sectors that were create, creating most of the jobs that were attracting the displaced workers, they're losing on the job creation because they were human contact sectors. They're what you might call social sectors. It was the hospitality sector. It was the retail, high street kind of jobs. Uh, it was uh, care of all, all kinds, not only health care, but child care, uh, old people care. And those sectors are the ones that were affected um, most uh, badly by COVID. So the job creation there has suffered. So when we combine technology with uh, COVID and we look at uh, labor markets, then we do reach a, a, a situation that is rather worrying, at least to me, that uh, that the job destruction might continue at a fast pace, but the job creation may not be able to keep up with the job destruction and therefore maintain the employment rate at the uh, 70% that you mentioned before. If we go back to what I said before, it's not going to be forever like that. We're going to get back to uh, what we had before, unless we really want to get uh, more time of work, which is an observation that um, th- that we have been uh, seeing, in, especially in European countries and the United States. So this leads to the fundamental problem of worsening inequality, because some of these new jobs don't necessarily pay a high enough wage. So do you think that introducing concept of higher minimum wage is a solution in terms of government policies in designing a system that would work for everybody? Well, inequality is my, is my biggest long-term worry because as I mentioned before, I am worried about what's going to happen in the short term with job creation construction, but eventually we're going to get there you know, five years from now, maybe. But I don't see inequality uh, somehow curing itself as you were, you know, this, there's always, there is always the potential of social unrest, uh, problems there with extreme inequalities, because they, they are not only inequalities of, of income, they impact on the standard of living, on health standards. Now, you mentioned the minimum wage. I think the minimum, a, a, a good minimum wage is good, but only for the very bottom of the labor market, the lowest uh, wages, because we know that section of the labor market is not competitive. If it was competitive, you had many, many um, companies uh, competing with each other for workers, then you wouldn't need the minimum wage. They would push wages up. But 
there are big monopolies in, in those uh, in, in that sector. Those famous tests that were banned involved the fast food industry. The fast food industry obviously is not very competitive. It's dominated by two or three suppliers. Then there, there might be warehouse jobs. Again, they're dominated by two or three people, delivery jobs, you know, that, that kind of big economy jobs. And the, and, and the minimum wage does help when uh, you have these non-competitive elements in that it sets a base at which workers know that they can go and work and they know how much they're going to earn and they're not worried about being taken advantage of by a very big employer who's much bigger than them or any kind of organization they might appeal to. In other words, we see the government as a protector of, of workers at the lowest unskilled end of the labor market with the minimum wage when at a time when in the old days of all the very crowded strong manufacturing, trade unions were offering that protection and, uh, through wage negotiations. So what should our kids learn today in terms of skills to be ready for the job market in 20, 30 years from now? Um, is What are the skills that will be most valued by society? Mm-hmm. Is it emotional intelligence, IQ, or capacity to adapt? What's your opinion on that? And I get this question all the time being a university. Uh, professor, my answer uh, nowadays is very different from the answer I had given um, uh, a few years ago. Get get a bit of everything. You know, it's like you go to one of those uh, ice cream stores and you see twenty flavors, and and you go and say, "Could I have a bit of each? Can I try them all?" <laughs> kind of thing. And then, and then I can decide which one I want. Whereas in the past, you go and say, "Ah, oh, you know, plain vanilla or chocolate vanilla," and that's it. You, you shouldn't specialize uh, too soon. You should learn the EQ because the jobs of the future will involve some uh, social uh, contact. In, um, in, in Britain, we call those soft skills, but it's not a good term. I think sooner or later, we're going to abandon it. You know, I prefer to use social uh, skills. Uh, they're by no means uh, to be looked uh, down uh, at. And... Um, and, and of course, technology will be advancing and we're going to need the highly specialized technical people as well. But that's something that that can be learned on the job after you, you, you take on your portfolio of many different skills and abilities. You know, obviously, mathematics is absolutely essential for anyone, even social skills, you know, and, and, and you know, language and all that. But I wouldn't say, oh, you know, new technology, you have to understand it, STEM for everyone. No, you know, the, the, the jobs of the future will be in the health and care sector, learn how to deal with other people, um, in the hospitality industry, because as human beings, we don't like to be looked after by machines, even if they're capable of doing it, but currently they're not even capable of doing it. When you go to a then simple things like you go to a restaurant, you want to meet someone who knows, who understands about food, about wines. You ask, what wine should I have with these? And talks to you. You don't get a robotic voice saying, red or white, sir. (laughs) And and those are skills that need need to be learned. Of course, you might come back and say, okay, fair enough, skills, but those jobs don't pay well. Well, that's where the inequality problem comes in. That's why inequality is my big worry. Those jobs should be paid well. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly um, maybe a, a sort of Darwinism of jobs where over time, 
the jobs that require a more generalist set of skills will eventually attract more uh, talent and and be more uh, well might be rewarded more attractively compared to others um so you, yes. so what you're describing is a shift in the hierarchy of jobs and maybe society will pay more yes. for different set of jobs that are maybe undervalued today and that could exactly. fundamentally change what is being taught at school yeah exactly you see we we're beginning to see that in in some sectors of the economy because especially in that I, I mean take take the restaurant trade in um in britain at least you know if you go back 1980s 90s they the the, the chefs were cooked Cooks and it was a very badly paid uh, profession. You worked in hot, sweaty environments, in kitchens, strange hours, you know, at night, weekends, and all of that. Now, there are celebrities, at least sure. very successful ones. Yeah, you know, you switch on your television, and some of the most popular programs is that you see chefs doing all kinds of things. You know, recently I even watched one of the most famous. Was famous chef in the UK going around the Greek islands finding interesting things to cook and eat, you know, with TV cameras following following him. The th things do change, you know, but uh, it's it, it's a slow process, and we should promote it also in um, other sectors like care. You know, having a good care is is, is a wonderful experience. You know, it's. And, and when you see how much is spent on things like uh, care, both healthcare and uh, childcare, and, and and other kinds of, uh, sort of social care generally, the spending there increases faster than income. So it's what we economists call the luxury. You know, when if your income goes up by by ten percent, you are going to spend on uh, caring services something like twelve percent. Mm -hmm. That that difference shows you that this service is a luxury and I'm prepared to pay more than what I was paying before, you know, now that I can afford it. Thank you, uh, Professor Sir Chris Pisaridis. I think uh, we've run out of time. This was uh, incredible insights. So the main message is uh, hedge your bets and don't put all your eggs or skills in one basket. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much. It was interesting talking to you. Thank you. I think the bottom line when it comes to adaptability and jobs is to make sure you keep learning new tricks, to make sure you don't become too specialized in one single field where you learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. It is best to know more and more about almost everything. True, but it is not about quantity, but quality. Fair enough. To quote Einstein, life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. Thank you for listening to this episode of 2050 Investors. And thanks to Sir Chris Pisaridas for sharing some useful insight with us. I hope this episode has helped you get a better glimpse of the future of finance. You can find the show on your regular streaming apps. Please subscribe, leave some stars on Apple Podcasts, leave comments anywhere you like, and spread the word. See you at the next episode.
While the following podcast discusses the financial markets, it does not recommend any particular investment decision. If you are unsure of the merits of any investment decision, please seek professional advice.